We are still in, as Chris was mentioning, still in this short interlude of taking a break from actually walking through the text of Romans and dealing with specific topics that have come out from the first three chapters. So chapters one, two, and three we've been through, and we are handled so far in this little interlude the ideas of total depravity, the fact that in our totality, everything that we, we are spiritually, emotionally, physically, we are depraved. It's not that we are as bad as we could be. It's not that we behave in a manner that is bad as it could be, but we are totally depraved. We are dead in our sins. And so, as Chris mentioned a couple weeks ago, for the Christian, and this is relevant for us today, for the Christian, we are no longer depraved. We are no longer under total depravity because we have been purchased. We have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, and it's His grace and His mercy poured out on us because God's wrath was poured out on Him on the cross that we are able to have this status of no longer being under total depravity, but we are under Christ. We are under grace. Last week, Justin preached and discussed the ideas of transgenderism, and and you see even in that just one example how the culture has taken total depravity and just forced it into the culture, where they've taken what is good and right about true identity found in God and distorted it. And so today our topic, as Chris mentioned, is on idolatry. What we worship matters. I think we'll see as we get into this that it is vitally important that we understand that all of us worship, all of us are worshipers, All of us have in us a need to worship something, and so that matters because what we worship, and when we worship the wrong thing, we end up in a dangerous place, and that our worship is ultimately for God. So tonight we're going to talk through this idea of idolatry, what it means for us to be idol worshipers, what it means to worship the one true God as we should, and as Chris mentioned, we'll be looking at specific details of how this impacts our culture, how this impacts us, and really pulling things from both Old Testament and New Testament. John Calvin has a quote, and I think it's a good one, that goes into this idea of depravity. He says, our nature is a perpetual factory of idols. I think he's right, because idolatry is something that we battle and we wrestle with every single day. Every day of our lives, we will deal with the fact that we are, in our sinful nature, desiring to elevate something above God. We are desiring to have idols in our lives of some kind. And so this evening, that's what we're walking through. And there's a a number of different ways we could try to tackle this, but here's what we're going to do tonight. It's kind of going to be two sections to the sermon. The first section is going to be very theory-based, theology-based. What, we're going to define terms. What is an idol? What is an idol of the heart? What is idolatry? What do all these things mean? And then bring in some scripture to support what we're talking about. And then the second part of that will be practical in nature. So what are some idols that we see a lot of times in our culture, that we experience, that we have as part of our lives that we see today? There are a number of sources we could cite if we were going to define what is an idol. All of the sources would maybe have a different twist or a turn, but most of them would kind of fall along with what Tim Keller has written here. It's from a book called Counterfeit Gods. It says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. And anything that you seek 
to give you what only God can give. I think it's a good summary, a good capture of what truly is an idol. Essentially, if we want to boil it down even further, it's anything, anything in life that we take and we elevate to a position of priority or importance above God. Where God should be central in our lives, we place something else there. That's an idol. And it can be anything. Scripture supports this, and we've, we've studied through Romans 1 already, but Scripture supports this. Um, Romans 1, 21 to 25, specifically. We'll see if it catches up to me. Maybe. I'll just read it from the Bible. It's a good thing to have Scripture right in front of you so you don't have to rely on technology. That's a warning for Chris at some point in time in the future. Um, Romans 1, 21 to 25. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, the impurity to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Specifically, we look at verse 23. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The NLT translates it this way. Instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols. So Calvin's right, because Paul is right and Scripture is right. Calvin is right that the idols in our lives are a perpetual thing. They are always there because we are by nature a factory of idols. And it's due to our depravity, it's due to our sinful nature inherited from Adam. So we pursue these other things, but this isn't a new thing. This isn't a new concept for Paul. He didn't just come up with this in in Romans 1 and it came out of nowhere. Idolatry is by far the the biggest, the largest, the most frequently discussed topic of sin in Scripture. If you just look back to the Old Testament, you think of the example of the Israelites. So Israel's in slavery in Egypt. They come out of slavery. God miraculously takes them out of slavery And within just a few months, they're at Mount Sinai. Moses is up the mountain. He's getting the commandments, the law from God. And what are the people doing? Worshiping a golden calf. Just months after God parted an entire sea for them. You continue to progress along the history of Israel, and you see as they move into this promised land that God has given them, you read the book of Judges, and it's just time after time after time, again and again, falling into idolatry, worshiping other gods. Even after the kingdom's established and David is on the throne, what does it say of Solomon that he falls into? His, his very son, the, the son that's promised to David that would be the foreshadowing of Jesus in the sense of his kingdom established forever, he falls into idolatry. The kingdoms of the northern and the southern tribes of Israel continue in this idolatry with very rare, very few examples of anyone, any of the kings, willing to say, no, idolatry is wrong and we're not going to do that. So they continue throughout the history of Israel falling into idolatry. And and so this concept for Paul is not something new. 
When we think of it, it's, it's an old idea, but with any old idea, when we bring it into our context, when Paul brings it into his context, and we bring it to where we are today, we realize that it's all the same stuff, it just gets repackaged. It's all the same ideas, they just get packaged differently for us today than they would have back then. You know, we're not bowing down to statues now. There's no, there's no bail that's a statue that we're looking at and we're bowing down to. And unless you participate or are involved in any Eastern-type religions like Buddhism, you've probably never seen an actual statue to bow down to, an actual god to bow down to. And it's because the idols that we deal with, the idolatry that we have, is actually in our hearts. It's internal. I think we'll see that in two different passages. The first one is in Ezekiel 14. You're like, Ezekiel, I don't know where that is. And it should be up on the screen at some point. But Ezekiel 14, verses 1 through 8. Old Testament prophet talking about the idea of idolatry. And actually, this will be the only place in Scripture where you'll read a phrase similar to idols in their hearts or, or idols of the heart. There's actually a book in the bookstore called Idols of the Heart. That phrase comes from Ezekiel chapter 14 because it's the only place in Scripture that says idols of the heart. To set up the context of what, what's happening here with Ezekiel is that the leaders of Israel are coming to Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a prophet. They're coming to him, and they're wanting to inquire what God has. And this is God's response. Chapter 14, verses 1 through 8. It says, Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts, and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are all estranged from me through their idols." Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. For any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel who separate himself from me, taking his idols into his heart and putting the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet come to a prophet to consult me through him, I, the Lord, will answer him myself. And I will set my face against that man, and I will make him a sign and a byword and cut him off from the midst of my people. I want us to look primarily at three things, because there's a lot of stuff there. There's a lot of Old Testament prophet-type language. You're like, I'm getting lost in what Ezekiel is actually talking about. So I want to focus on three things as it relates to idolatry. First, behavioral change is not the root concern of God when it comes to idolatry. The action of bowing down to idols was ultimately indicative of a heart problem, but it's not God's major concern. Look at that in verse 3. He says there, they have taken their idols where? Into their hearts. This is an, this is an internal concern for God. His, his concern is their hearts, and ultimately his concern is that by allowing these idols internally into their hearts, they will commit sin. He says it in verse 3. 
He says, they will set a stumbling block of iniquity before their faces. God's concern is not so much the act of bowing down. It's because in the act of bowing down, it reveals a heart that is committed to something other than God. That's what, is, that's what God's getting at here in Ezekiel 14. So first thing, God is not concerned primarily. The root of his concern is not just behavioral change. He doesn't just want us to conform to some behavior and some standard while our hearts are still far from him. That's not his desire. That's not what he wants. The second item, second thing, in verse 6, the proper response to seeing idolatry in our lives is repentance. It's Ezekiel 14, verse 6. It says, Therefore says, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, repent and turn away from your idols. So the, the proper response to seeing idolatry in our lives is repentance. It's true repentance that says what we have held in our hearts as most valuable, we are now going to turn from and elevate God to that position that he should have been in to begin with. So the one, the one who takes importance, the one who takes priority in our hearts is no longer this idol, is no longer this thing, it's now God. So that's the response when we see idolatry, when we see things consuming us and consuming our hearts, is to say, no, I will repent of that, I will turn from those things, and I will put God and elevate him back to the position where he belongs. Now, true repentance will involve behavioral change. And you're like, whoa, whoa, wait, I thought you just said God's not concerned about behavioral change. It's not necessarily a contradiction because the behavioral change comes from a heart that has changed. You see, like, there, there's a connection there. It's not just that we change the way we act. It's that our actions change as a result of our heart changing. And so when that thing we have in our lives that we value so much is replaced with God, that will inherently change how we live. It will inherently change what we do. And you see that in verse 6 as well when he says, they will turn away from all of their abominations. There's the NIV, I think, translated as detestable practices. They will turn away from their evil behaviors. So a, a change in behavior is driven by a change of heart, and the change of heart is what God is most concerned with. Third thing to see, the danger of unrepentant idolatry. Verse 8, the danger of unrepentant idolatry is being under the, the wrathful judgment of God. You see that when he says in verse 8, that I will set my face against that man. The, the imagery there that the Old Testament uses throughout is that when God turns his face on someone, that person is now under wrath. That person is now under judgment. And so the, the danger of idolatry, the danger of unrepentance in idolatry is that we are now under the wrath of God. Seeing the connections there? This is Ezekiel 14, probably a chapter many of you don't read, but there's good stuff there, so maybe you should read it sometime. Wrath is coming for the unrepentant idolater. Let's jump to New Testament. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. And I think what we'll see is that there are connections here, and while it's not necessarily as clear with Paul as it was with Ezekiel, Colossians 3, 5, and 6, I think will we'll tell us the same thing. We'll unpack the same idea, just packaged a bit differently. Colossians 3, 5, and 6. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, 
and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The structure of the Greek here is that what is considered idolatry is actually focused specifically on the word covetousness. We could use the word greed. It's, it's not necessarily referring to that whole list, although those, those things in those lists are sinful behaviors. They're all things that we could point to and say, yes, there's some level of idolatry that is involved in these things. But the way Paul structures that covetousness is what is idolatry. That's what Paul is conveying. And if you think of the idea of covetousness, what is it? It's, it's an internal thing. It's something that we, we internally look to something that is not ours, and we desire it. It's a selfish desire. It's a desire and a love for something more than God that should be loved less than God. We're going to come back to this verse in section two of our time, but I think it's important to realize that when we think of that word covetousness, it's the idea of something internal in our lives. It's not necessarily marked by external action. It's, it's internal to us. It's what's in our hearts, what we crave, what we desire. But the other connection to Ezekiel 14, we see in verse 6. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. So Paul and Ezekiel are saying the same exact thing. When there is idolatry in our lives that is unrepentant of, the wrath of God is what's in store for that. The love of something more than the love of God results in the wrath of God. And that's similar to the way Ezekiel says he, he turns his face from that person. So unrepentant idolatry is dangerous because the wrath of God is revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness, as Romans 1 tells us. And I think it's important to consider why is it so dangerous? Why is idolatry, why is the wrath of God so dangerous? Why does this matter so much? And to do that, we'll go back to Exodus chapter 20. It'll come up in a moment, Exodus 20. And we're actually going to look at one of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verses 4 and 5. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So the commandment that God gives, it's the first real explicit statement in the law that says, you shall not not have any gods before me. Do not make an image of any. Do not bow down to them. Do not worship any god other than Yahweh. Why? For, because, I am a jealous God. God's jealousy is not a weak, unholy, insecure, wicked jealousy that we experience. When we experience issues of jealousy, normally it's something that we're insecure about something in ourselves. It's a, it's a weak, immoral, wicked jealousy. God's jealousy is not that. God's jealousy is both righteous and it's loving. God's jealousy is righteous in that He rightly deserves the love and the affection that we would give to an idol. He deserves that. That's his. And so he has every right to be jealous of it. Shailen has a song, The Jealous One. It's on his album, The Attributes of God. I would encourage you to listen to it because it's a good song. But in there, what he remarks is that 
there is one instance in the human life where jealousy is a right, is a right feeling, is a right thing in our lives, and that's the marriage relationship. And so, as a husband, it is right for me to be jealous of the fact that if, a, if another guy were to be flirting with my wife, I have every right to be jealous in that because her love and her affection is meant for me, not for another man. And so it's equally right that God, when we offend him in our pursuit of other things and our love of other things, that he says, no, 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 that, that love and affection you have for that thing is meant for me. And so I am jealous of that and rightly jealous. So God's jealousy is righteous. It is right. His jealousy is not just right, but it's also loving. And what I mean by that is he understands that when we are in a position where we are having him as our priority, when he is the affection of our lives, when he is the love of our lives, that's when we find greatest joy. That's where we find hope. That's where we find satisfaction. That's where we find happiness. That's where we find joy. And so God, in knowing this, is loving us in the sense that he desires that for us. He cares and is concerned that when we pursue other gods, we are not enjoying life as we could because God is not the center of that. And so if we were to take our affections and our love and move them from this thing and put them into God, our lives would be filled with joy. Our lives would be filled with satisfaction and contentment that it otherwise wouldn't. So God knows that when we pursue idols and we place things as more important than him, we're missing ultimately what's more valuable to us. I think we see that even in the story of Jonah as he pursues after Jonah. His pursuit of Jonah is not one of punishment because Jonah has made some poor choices. His pursuit of Jonah is one of mercy saying, if you come back to me, you will find contentment and satisfaction and joy where you didn't have it before. So God is offended by our idolatry because he's more valuable than idols and should be in the place of most importance in our hearts. And God is concerned by our idolatry because we'll never experience true and proper joy when God is not at the place of most importance in our hearts. Last thing I want to get into before we get into some of the practical stuff. If we were to try to answer what is the root, what is the foundation of idolatry? There's probably a number of different things you could get into, fear of God being one of them. Maybe in a future message we can get into some of that. But I think if we boiled down, if we looked at all the idols that we have in our hearts, we would be at the center of those things. We would be at the foundation of those things, the self, who we are, ourselves. And it's interesting because the the Bible corresponds to this. Isaiah chapter 44, verses 13 to 18 what Isaiah does here in this section is he says that there is a, there's a carpenter. He gives, he gives this idea of how is an idol made. And he gives an example of a carpenter who comes along. And this carpenter cuts down a tree. And in cutting down the tree, he takes half of it and he builds a fire. And he makes a meal. He bakes some bread. He warms himself by the fire. And then with the other half, he crafts, he whittles himself an idol. And he bows down to that idol. And then in chapter 44, verse 17, he says, the rest of it he made, he makes into a god, his idol. He falls down to it and worships it. And he prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. 
The question we should be asking ourselves about this situation is, who's the one who actually gives that idol any relevance, any power? And ultimately it's who? The guy who made it. The one, the one who actually makes the idol is the one who's actually giving it any type of relevance or power in his life. And so who's the one who's actually in power, in control? Who's the one who's actually at the center of that idolatry? It's the person who made it. It's the self. It's like he's the, if you're familiar with the Wizard of Oz story, he's like the man behind the curtain who's pushing all the buttons and making all the things work. So the, the idol's on the outside, but in, in reality, the one who is there is the one who's empowering it, that person. And so in, in a real way, we, if we looked at the idols in our lives, we looked at the idol in Isaiah 44, the one who is at the center of it is us, the self. We realize when we look at things through this lens that the deepest affections of our lives the deepest love in our lives is not oftentimes God, but it's ourselves. We love ourselves way more than we love anything else. And that's oftentimes what drives our behaviors, that drives where we see idols crop up in our lives because the foundation of our idolatry is us. We care more about ourselves than we care about other things. And, and the remedy for that, I've heard it said a couple of different ways. The remedy for selfishness is to think of yourself less or to think less of yourself. And I think there's, there's good things there, but I think it misses one thing. The remedy for selfishness, the remedy for self-centeredness is to think of God more and to have him be valued more in our lives and us valued less. Because when we move in to say, well, I just have to think of myself less, who's, who's in the center of that? me. When we say, I need to value God more, who's at the center of that? God. Let's move on to some practical things, um, because we've got 20 minutes, and I should be able to fit most of it in there. We'll see how, how well we go through this. I think it's important that we do move into practical, because our intellectual theology, what we think, what's up here, doesn't always match our functional theology. And what, what our functional shit theology shows is what we actually believe. So we can say all the right things, we can have all the right stuff in our heads, but the way we live is more indicative of what we actually believe than what we can say coming out of our mouths. I can tell you all the theology in the world, but if I don't live any of it, I don't believe any of it. I can say all the right things about idolatry, and I'm sure all of us would say, yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I think it's wrong to worship other things than God. But then when we go and live and do it, we're effectively saying what we just said isn't actually true in our lives. So our functional theology is even more important, I would say, than what we just have in our heads that comes out of our mouths. Because it reveals what we actually believe. And I think it's good for us to start by identifying how do we even, how do we even find idols in our hearts? How do we even find some of these things? What, what's the way we identify idols in our lives? And I think one way to do that is through just asking us a series of questions. None of these are going to be exhaustive. These are just a few options for us to consider as we look at how do we diagnose idols of the heart? First one, 
What is it that I fear? Maybe it's people. Maybe we fear the opinions of people. Maybe it's we fear losing people. And so our, our idol ends up looking like a lot of control over our lives, where we need to have everything in place and everything aligned, and all the things have to be perfect, because if they're not perfect, I may end up losing someone I love. And if I lose someone I love, then I don't know what I'm going to do, because I can't live without that person. And so we fear the loss of people. So, so what do we fear? Second question to ask ourselves, what do we love? What is that thing that's so important to us that we are willing to, to go to whatever means necessary to, to get that thing? What is it that we long for? What is it that we think would satisfy us? What do we love? Third question, what am I willing to compromise to get what I want? What am I willing to compromise in specifically my beliefs to get what I want? So I want X thing. Am I willing to lie for it? Am I willing to steal for it? Am I willing to just, you know, knock, knock a couple little changes on the tax returns so that I get a little more money in because I value money and no one will really notice if I fudge the numbers a little bit? Am I, am I willing to lie a little bit, just a little lie to get what I want. Fourth question to ask, what do I value over people? What do I value over people? Someone does something that is inconveniencing to me. Do I treat them with contempt? Do I call them stupid? Do I lash out at them? I see somebody who's whose mistakes causes me problems, how do I respond to that? Because if I'm looking to belittle and devalue people because they are an inconvenience to me, maybe we value whatever it is they inconvenience a little too much because we're willing to belittle and push down someone else. You say, well, I don't ever call anybody an idiot. Do you think it? I think all of us probably have. I have. Somebody inconvenienced me, I'm like, oh, what an idiot. How stupid are you? Even just, just driving down the road and someone cuts me off, it's like, what a moron that guy is. I, I don't know who he is, but he's a moron because he just did something dominating convenience me. Do you think it? What's in our hearts? Because remember, that's what God's concerned about. He's concerned with what's in our hearts. He's not so much concerned about our behavioral changes. There are more questions, I'm sure, but um, I think those are a good start. Those are... are good few questions to consider as we think about how do we identify idols in our lives. So we're going to get into a few different things related to idols, specifically ones that I think we see a lot in our culture. And I want to preface those things by just saying we live in a time and a culture both inside of and outside of the church where you make one statement and people just attach a lot of absolutes to it. So you, you make a comment like, I like the color green. And all of a sudden, everybody piles on and says, well, Pete likes, dislikes every color in the world. He just likes green. It's like, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying I like the color green. I have nothing against blue or red or whatever other color. Or if I were to say, this one will get me in trouble, but that's okay. The food in Pittsburgh's lacking quite a bit. Your pizzas, your sandwiches, your breads, I'm sorry. They need to all up their game a bit. Um, 
Uh, Eddie's upset with me about that, but Eddie knows me by now. He called me out the other day about pizza. That's, that's not to say I hate Pittsburgh or all Pittsburgh food is terrible. It just means somebody's got to come along and make some better pizza. That's all I want. Um, that being said, I may say some things over the next 13 minutes and 40 seconds that some of you may disagree with, and that's fine. Come talk to me if you have a disagreement. I'm happy to do anything. I will try to clarify things. But there may be, may be some statements made that you're like, I, I don't like that he said that. What I would encourage you not to do is just assume absolutes on what I'm saying. Assume that I'm saying something that I'm not actually saying. And so if you have a concern, come talk to me. We'll talk through it. I have no problems talking about that. But we live in a culture and a society that, that doesn't value nuance. It just takes a statement and says, okay, then that must mean you believe all of these things. And that's not necessarily what I would be saying or believing. So... We're going to head back to Colossians chapter 3. We talked about this a little bit already in the idea of idolatry being something internal, idolatry being a heart problem. And I want to focus us specifically on the idea of covetousness or greed. Because it's something that our culture is overrun with. The idea of this word is Arrogant assumption that all people and things exist for one's own benefit. That's the idea of this word. It's this active self-interest at the expense of others. And if you look at our culture, you look at our society, how can you not help but see that? The, the exploitation of people for what? Money, for gain, for success. And I would even go so far as to say there's elements of our economic structure in America that prizes that, that pushes it, that says that our, our accumulation of wealth is what's most important, and it doesn't matter who we trample on to get that. That every extra dollar is worth it, and if we have to step on some people to get there, we're willing to do that. Just think back to 2007 gigantic housing crisis. What was the, the impetus for that? What caused that housing crisis? It was big banks. It was big corporations. It was people trying to make money. And what were they doing? They were doing it at the expense of people by giving them incredibly large mortgages for values of homes that weren't there. They were giving them to people who couldn't afford them, knowing that it, down the line it was going to hurt a lot of people, but they didn't care because in the immediate, their concern was what? Money. They wanted wealth, the accumulation of wealth. Even think back to a more recent example. Wells Fargo a few years ago got in some trouble because they were opening accounts and credit cards for people who didn't ask for them. Why? Because it increased people's incentives, it increased the bank, it made the bank more profitable. And so for the consumption of money, for the attainment of money, they did wrong things. And it hurt people, it impacted people. And so it didn't matter to them that they were harming individuals. They loved something. They valued something more than people. And so they chose to do wrong things in order to obtain that because wealth and greed and consumption of things, materialism, was their God, is their God. And we see that in our culture. We see that so much rampant throughout our culture that everyone's pursuit is of more stuff and how they can get more stuff 
rather than using the things that they have in order to help other people. Now, here's one of those clarifying statements. That doesn't mean I think capitalism is awful. It doesn't mean I think we need to tear it all down and then bring in a socialist economy. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is when you have a system and a structure that values money the way our system and structure does, you're going to have problems with greed. And it's going to influence our lives. Materialism that we see all around us, whether it's on social media or the media itself, we are going to be consumed with that as a culture. That money and the attainment of money and wealth is what we're all about. And that's not what Christians should be about. Greed and covetousness also affects our relationships, though. Remember what I mentioned that that word's talking about? It's, it's the arrogant assumption that all people exist for your own benefit. Do you have, ever, do you have the type of relationship or the friendships where the person only comes around when they want something? The person only comes around when they need something. They'll, they'll take from you all day. You're the one that's expected to change all the plans. You're the one that's expected to accommodate them with everything. All of your energies, all of your time is supposed to be for this person. And then when you are no longer useful, they move on to somebody else. Maybe you're the taker in that relationship and you don't even realize it. The center of your universe is you, and so your relationships are there strictly to fulfill your purposes. Strictly to fulfill what you want and what you need. And so when that friend is no longer useful, you walk away and you just find somebody else who can be useful. That's, that's greed. That's the assumption that the people in your lives are there for what purpose? For you to use and consume. A couple questions to ask if that's us and that's something that we struggle with. Is the only time we reach out to friends or family or relationships we have when we want something from them or when we need something from them? Do we ever reach out to somebody just to find out what's going on in their lives, how they're doing, how, how we can be praying for them? Or is it just that we use them for our benefit and then we move along? Moving back to our resources and specifically our money, our greed and our love of money impacts our relationship with God and it impacts them in this way and it's the way that we give. You know, this was personally a struggle for me years ago that I always made sure the investment account got the money it needed every week. But I wasn't as concerned that the church got the money that was supposed to be there. And I think as, over time, I realized that this was an imbalance in my life, and it was because I, I valued money too much. I valued the growth and the accumulation of money too much in my life, and so I wasn't, I wasn't active, and I would always chalk it up to, well, I keep forgetting. I wasn't active in giving to the mission that God has said I should be giving to. Ultimately, all that God has given me is his anyway, and so he says, I'm asking for a portion of that in order to further the gospel, and I wasn't doing that. And so I had to come to a realization that there was an idol of money in my life, and so I needed to address that. And one of the ways I addressed it is I just started to make my giving automatic. Every couple weeks, it just comes out. I don't even, I just know it comes out. I get a notification. Because otherwise, I would be sitting there wrestling with this idea of, should I do it? Should I not do it? There's this internal sinful nature that's struggling with 
should I do this thing? And wrestling with this idol of wealth in my own life. And so I just make it automatic. It just goes and I see how it's used to help other people. And it's great because once I started to see that happen, I then realized how much God was using the funds that I was giving, the money I was giving, in order to further the gospel. That I'm able to support people who are doing missions work. I'm able to support the church who is doing missions work and spreading the gospel in Wilkinsburg and around the world. And I wouldn't have had that benefit had I been stuck with this idol of money in my own life. And we can oftentimes get the same way, that that greed and wealth and money is just so consuming for us that we're not even willing to give to what God has asked us to give to. Second thing we see, and I don't have much time left, I ran, went way long on that part, sorry about that. Comfort and culture. Comfort as an idol is seen through this idea of self-fulfillment, expressive individualism. That anything that bothers me, anything that is uncomfortable for me, I don't want it as part of my life. We see it in culture, probably the extreme example is college campuses where there are safe spaces, where if you don't want to hear something that someone has to say, you just go to this safe space and no one's allowed to say anything that might make you uncomfortable. That this idea of comfort, that everything in life should just be about me and it should just be about what makes me feel comfortable is, is dangerous. Because what it's doing is it's setting up in our lives idols that says everything should just be easy. Life should just be easy. And when life is easy, what do we end up finding at the end of it? Life's not that easy. When we we try to make life just about comfort and ease, what we ultimately find is that it's not easy, it's difficult, and it's challenging. And so when we prop up this idol of comfort in our lives and things go wrong, life crumbles the cracks start to form in life and we don't know how to respond to it. We even see that in relationships where the life of a Christian is one of service. Even in marriage relationships and family relationships, it's about serving other people, but serving other people involves sacrifice and it's not always comfortable. You know, we want that, if you remember the commercials from Staples, we want that easy button where you just push the button and everything's easy. All of our problems just go away. But there's no easy button in life. And so, parents, you've had a long, hard day at work, and what do you want to come home to? Peaceful, easy life. A a time where you just relax at home. What do you often find instead? Chaos. Problems. Difficult conversations. And, and the idol of comfort we have in our lives comes up when we're challenged with something difficult and how do we respond to it? Do we get mad? Do we take it out on our family and our friends, our kids, our spouses? Do we become so irritated and angry that we, we lash out at other people because our comfort and our ease has been disturbed? One way this relates to our relationship with God is God's design for the church is not for us to be comfortable. 
God never said, when you become part of a church, the idea is that you just find comfort there. The, the church isn't for us to go and just see what we can get out of it, and if it makes us uncomfortable, we walk away and find something else that we can get out of it that will make us comfortable. That's not what the church is there for. The church should be a place that challenges us, that we get involved in, and so that the question we ask is not, what can I get out of this place? It's, how can God be glorified in this place, and how can I be a part of that? Because that, that again, decentralizes us from the statement of that, from that question of what can I get out of it, and rather it's, what can God, how can God be glorified in this? It removes us as the center, and it places God where he should be at the center. It strips away the self from those things, and so when we think about church, and we think about our worship, and we think about our body of believers here, our goal should not be, how can this place make me comfortable, but how can I serve? How can I worship? How can I care for? How can I love other people? And that will inherently involve sacrifice. That will inherently involve putting ourselves in situations that don't make us comfortable. Very, very uncomfortable, in fact. But the design of the church is that we do this together, and it's not a place, like Gina likes to say, it's not a country club for us to just sit around. It's a place where we can come and worship together and serve one another and care for one another. We've got not that much time left, but I think I can get through this quickly. The last year and a half, the term justice has been thrown around a lot. It's usually thrown around with some level of an adjective. Racial, inju- racial justice, social justice, economic justice. There's all types of adjectives that are thrown around here. And it's, it's been the topic of the day within our society. Injustice in our country is a problem. I'm not, not going to lie, there are injustices that we face. There are injustices that we see each and every day. The problem, though, is, and where where our culture strays, is that justice has become a god. Justice has become a god in our society, and you see it in this way. When justice brings about unforgiveness and a lack of mercy, justice has become a god. When justice has become a god, we we see it become a god when it turns people into self-righteous and arrogant and prideful people. They think they're superior to everyone else because they go do the justice thing now. They put the black square on Instagram and so they care more than everybody else who didn't put the black square on Instagram and it creates this self-righteous arrogance in people. And for us, if our pursuit of righting wrongs and justice is marked by arrogance and bitterness and anger, and contentiousness, we've elevated justice to a position of worship, to a position of God. And, and in our culture, our culture wants to see this utopia, this perfect situation where all injustices are, are righted and there is justice throughout all of the land that will only happen when Christ returns. That's the only time that will take place. We won't see that in our day today. But that that pursuit of that thing and done so without Christ at the center of it has resulted in a situation where there is no forgiveness, there is no mercy, there is no love, there is no care for people. We just end up in a situation where justice has become God. So does that mean that we just don't care about injustice then? 
We see injustice, but we just don't care about it. No, that's not it at all. We care, but our pursuit of justice has to be grounded in God as what is most important. I'll take an example, actually, from ECC's core commitments. There is a core commitment for the church to unify all peoples of every class, color, and capacity. Inherent to that will involve dealing with issues of justice. It just will. It naturally will. You look around the world, you look around Wilkinsburg, and you're going to deal with people who have not been cared for, who have not been taken care of, and who have experienced situations of injustice. It will just happen. We're going to have to engage in that because that is one of our core commitments as we look to unify all peoples. The difference, though, is... I got way behind... Sorry about that. The difference, though, is that core commitment is driven out of a mission. And that mission is multiplying a passionate love for Jesus and those made in his image. If those things were flipped, if the core commitment of unifying peoples was actually our mission, we have now elevated justice and we have elevated the unification of people to a position of God in our church. But the fact that we've placed it underneath of the gospel of Jesus Christ being spread and given to people, we've placed it in the right category because it's within the gospel and it's within the multiplication of a passionate love for Jesus that we find justice being able to take place properly. So that we can pursue injustice and we can pursue rightness with a proper mindset because Jesus is at the center of it. And when we remove Jesus from the center of it, you end up with what our culture has, which is ridiculous right now with issues of unforgiveness and unmercy and lack of care for people. But when we center our pursuit of justice on love for Christ as what is most important and God at the center of that, then we place it in its proper context. There are so many other areas we could discuss. Children, spouses, jobs, friendships, food, technology, One thing I want to make clear that I didn't specify earlier, the things that we make idols in our lives are not necessarily bad things in themselves. They are good things. Technology is good most of the time. Children, good. Relationships, good. Sex, good. All of these things, good. And the problem comes when we take those good things and we make them what's prominent and priority in our lives. That's when we end up falling into sin because... What we've seen is that when we take idols into our hearts, it ultimately leads to sinful behavior. One last thing practically, and then we'll be wrapping things up. Ultimately, idolatry doesn't work. Idolatry doesn't work because when we take something that should be the place where God is, and we put something else that's not God there, it will ultimately crumble, it will ultimately disappoint We always wanted to have a child who would forever be dependent on us, who could be little mirrors of us. Eventually, that child's going to disappoint. Eventually, that child's going to come along and say, Mom, Dad, I don't need you anymore. And the cracks start to form in our lives and our world. We always wanted a spouse who would love us forever, forever be faithful, never forsake us. And it's great when we, when we find that spouse 
and we can love them, but ultimately, if we're putting them into this position of never, never forsaking us, having issues of, of unfaithfulness, we will be disappointed. Because always loving, always being faithful, never forsaking, that's whose job? God's. It's not our spouse's job. The perfect car, the perfect house, the perfect life, the perfect whatever you want to name it, all of those things will ultimately fail us. And when they fail us, it opens up cracks in our lives, things start to crumble, and what is our response to it? Oftentimes, it is one of panic, one of stress, one of anxiety. And so we move into a situation where we start to blame others. We either start to blame ourselves and say, well, the reason this is happening to me is because I'm an idiot, I'm dumb, I'm terrible, God's punishing me, I'm worthless. So we start to blame ourselves. Or we start to blame other people. You know, it's, it's your fault that this thing happened in my life. My life was great until you came along and did this to me. Or we blame God. God, you said my life would be good if I followed you, and it's not good. So we start to throw accusations at God. God, life's not good right now, and you said that it would be, and so I can't trust you anymore. We don't have time to dig into the rest of this that I wanted to get into, but I want to leave us with one thing. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. This is Paul talking to the Thessalonians. It's his opening statement to them, and he says, You have turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. There is no wrath for the children of God. As we repent of idols in our lives, because of what Jesus has done, we have, we have laid aside those idols and turned to Jesus. And because of that, Paul says, Jesus is delivering us from the wrath to come. Those who have trusted in Jesus are not like those Israelite leaders in Ezekiel 14 who God is turning their face from. In fact, no, God is fully embracing us as we come to him. He welcomes us with open arms, telling us that he's better than every idol we could possibly ever pursue. And that when we find our joy, when we find our satisfaction in him and place him in the position of prominence as he should be, that is when we will find joy. That is when we will be the happiest. That is when he will be the most glorified. And that's his desire for all of our lives, that he be at the center of our lives. We're going to take communion now. And we do this every week at Eternal City. Um, And I think it's good for us to do as a reminder of the grace that God has given us in Jesus. It's through his death on the cross that we no longer have to be under wrath. We are no longer having his face turned against us. But it's It's Jesus' death, it's Jesus' sacrifice that ultimately breaks down these these idols in our lives, these idols in our hearts, so that we can have satisfaction and joy.